You are listening to the Ortho Idea Podcast, where we bring you the newest trends in orthopedic technology. Tune in for engaging interviews with medical device executives, surgeons, and surprise special guests discussing new disruptive technology in the marketplace. Here is your host, Eric Anderson. Thanks, everyone, for joining the Ortho Idea Podcast. My name is Eric Anderson. I'll be your host today. And today I have the distinct honor of having Laura Iman come on the podcast. And we had some LinkedIn conversation that was very spirited and lots of information that was exchanged over certain subjects of value analysis and other things on LinkedIn. So I invited Laura and she graciously accepted to come on to the podcast. And she is an expert in supply chain management, supply chain operations, supply chain sustainability was a nurse, but I'll let her go into her background here, but this is going to be exciting podcast. So without further ado, Laura, how are you today? I'm great, Eric. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate the opportunity to speak about value analysis and some of the other topics I think that you'll cover today. My background in healthcare is I was a nurse for over 20 years. I've done ICU nursing. I've done electrophysiology nursing, travel nursing, and then decided to go back to school for my MBA and then focused on supply chain for acute healthcare organizations. So I did that for about eight years or so and learned quite a bit in the process of of being in the role. Well, that's great. And thank you again for agreeing to come on because we've had several questions that have been sent in and phone calls, text messages, and just this is a question not only from the medical device side and the representative side, but from the surgeon side. Say so they they a lot of questions have flooded in about certain things. So I think this could take on a you know a multiple episodes of the podcast, but today we'll try and hit some of the main points. So but one of the things that really what came up on LinkedIn that that I had posted it we, I do quite a bit of of content that I try to present on LinkedIn and and get people's opinions about is just the overall process of having a new product submitted and the the process that it goes through and why it sometimes takes so long. And I just wanted to get your feedback on that. And, and if you could walk us through that and, and talk a little bit about that, that'd be wonderful. Sure. So I think there's a lot of variables that play into new product approvals for hospitals. It used to be back in the day that, you know, a physician, a surgeon would want to use a particular widget and would have the rep walk it in and the value analysis team or the supply chain team, which comprises a lot of the value analysis team, was unaware until the product was used and we were notified after the fact. And so that's the way it sort of went for a very long time. And in that, I would say that sometimes we didn't know we didn't know the price of the product that was being brought in until we received the bill only. We didn't know if there was any clinical efficacy behind the use of the product. And so value analysis teams were formed to not run interference, but to ensure that the products that were that were being requested, served a clinical purpose and a positive outcome for the patient. Did it meet their needs? And so probably in the last, I would say, 10 years is when value analysis has really taken off and gained a name for itself. And last year in particular allowed value analysis teams to really strengthen themselves. And what I mean by that is that with the pandemic, 
and the need to use supplies and share them between healthcare systems, many healthcare systems realized that they were not standardized. And so it allowed them to put processes in place and sort of streamline the process. And some vendors think that, you know, we made it harder for them when in fact we were just trying to do more due diligence to the product request. So the way that it goes now is that depending on the healthcare system and how strong their value analysis team, and I want to talk about the value analysis team here in a second, but they will, obviously the vendor will submit documentation of the the product request and the surgeon name. Okay. And it used to be that value analysis teams were specific to each hospital. So I could have five hospitals in my city alone, and I could have Dr. Smith request to use a a specific stapling device at my facility, but it's not being used at my sister facility down the street, right? And so what would happen is then Dr. Smith would go down to the other facility and say, well, I can use this product at facility A, but why can't I use it at facility B? And it's because the VA teams, they weren't cohorted. So we were unaware what each facility was approving. So what they started to do is say, okay, let's cohort the teams. And so we're going to collect all of the, all of the surgeon requests. We're going to push them up to a divisional value analysis team. And from there, we look at clinical outcomes, level one studies. We don't ever use the white papers, by the way, that vendors provide because in some sense they're biased to their products. And and we know that. We have our own databases to do research and pull level one studies down to look at products. And then we have our own revenue integrity team that would research reimbursement depending on the DRGs that the vendors would provide us. And so we'd look at the product from a financial aspect as well. Is it beneficial for us to use or is it not beneficial for us to use from a financial standpoint? And then what is the benefit to the patient? You know, we don't we don't really want to use products that don't have level one studies to support them. And along with that, when you don't use products that have the clinical evidence, many times what happens is the insurance companies come back months later and deny payment for the use of that product. And surgeons aren't really ever aware of that. So there's, there's quite a bit of digging that goes into each product request. And the best way that I can, I can suggest to vendors to get their product in front of a value analysis committee is to have the surgeon champion it, not the vendor. And the reason I say that is because not all, but many healthcare systems try to stack their value analysis teams with people that have clinical backgrounds. But there are some that don't that are in these roles. A lot of supply chain people do not have any clinical experience whatsoever. So they don't understand how the product's used. They don't understand the benefit to the patient or the need. And so it's not at the top of their radar. And The one thing I'll say is that VA teams are really taught about cost saving measures, not we don't really focus necessarily on the revenue aspect of it or the patient outcome aspect of it. So you really need to know the audience that you're working with. And that means researching them, right? I've I've done value analysis back in 2008, and then I went to go do sales. And then I came back on this side with my sales experience to do value analysis. 
And so what I can say is from the sales perspective, it's really important that you understand your audience, who you're speaking with, research who they are, and work to build that relationship and go from there. Well, thank you for that explanation. And I did not realize that you also had a sales background as well. So that's fantastic. So you understand both sides of what we're dealing with. And and some of the, I'll tell you, a lot of the frustration that I get from feedback from people is they get all this information together for the value analysis team, a lot of information together. And obviously in some IDNs and some facilities, they want to know about surgeon ownership. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But, you know, those pieces of the puzzle, they get everything together and they submit it. And I totally agree with you. There needs to be a surgeon champion, but there's a surgeon champion involved. Everything is submitted. And well, the meeting canceled this month and and then it, and then it goes to the following month. And then, well, oh, you know what? The surgeon couldn't make it that month. So then it goes to the next month. So then it becomes this just really long process that frustrates the vendor side of it because obviously, you know, we, we want to have our products used, but at the same time, it's also the surgeon gets frustrated. So I guess, do you have any suggestions as to how to present this or shorten it? I don't know if there's any answer to this, but if you had any feedback on that. There is an easy answer to this. Good. Your surgeon goes to C-suite and says, I want this product. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was going to come up with because they talk to the CMO or the CFO or CEO, I guess. Yeah, there are. And so a lot of VA committees will have ad hoc meetings for requests like that. If it's urgent, so for example, in my role, I reported to the CFO. So depending on my conversations with the surgeon and the urgency of the request, I would take the the request directly to the CFO as a one-off and say, hey, listen, Dr. John Doe is requesting to use this and here's why, right? And Mm -hmm. here's what the financials look like. And usually through that manner, I was able to get it approved. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's good feedback. That's that's, That's great to know because I think that's where a lot of the frustration lies is just... And so what a lot of vendors... The feedback that I've gotten on this is they believe that it's a stall tactic as part of the hospital. And I just, in my perspective, I don't think it is a stall tactic because why would you put in so much work on your end yeah. for just nothing? I mean, that, that doesn't make much sense. So there's got to be a, you know, an answer or I guess a common ground is what I'm trying to figure out, really. It's absolutely not a stall tactic. Now, I can't say that 100% for all of them, right? But in scheduling these meetings, it's not just the value analysis folks that sit at the meetings. It's the surgeon. it's It's the CFO. It's the CMO. There are many, many schedules that need to be coordinated with. And, you know, depending on what is going on in the hospital at the time, you know, those other things may take precedence over a product request meeting, which is why I suggest that depending on the urgency that we, you know, you take what I call the side approach of of having a conversation with the CFO. But it's definitely not, at least for me, it was not a stall tactic. I can't speak for all of them because I understand that my surgeon's have needs. I also understand that, you know, healthcare technology is not stagnant. There are going to be new products coming out all the time because we're always working to improve healthcare. And whether those products cost more or less in some sense is irrelevant. The biggest question is, is does it benefit the patient 
And so when you have someone like me that has the clinical background that is in a supply chain role, in a value analysis role, we understand the urgency and the need of the request. It was very easy for me as an example. Let's say there was something that came out in the cardiovascular space. That's a very interesting area, right? Especially if it has to do with open hearts or vascular surgery, there are new products coming out all the time. They're extremely expensive, but I can tell you, but looking at them through a nursing lens, I can understand the need for the request and therefore would would work to push it through. But there's also part of what people call the stall tactic. That's not really a stall tactic is because healthcare systems and GPOs have changed their value analysis process. And you have to check all these boxes now when you're building out a deck, whether it's collecting the clinical evidence information, the financials, the is there any physician ownership? Because if there's physician ownership, that is a hard stop. Once a product is requested by a surgeon that has physician ownership, regardless of whether or not he has ownership, it has to go to legal to be vetted before it can even be presented through the value analysis committee. Gotcha. And thank you for that explanation on that. And and you had brought up the physician ownership piece. And that's obviously something that all vendors understand. I mean, it's very, very clear through especially a certain IDN, certain company that they do want, they want zero physician ownership. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because you kind of mentioned in a, in a post on LinkedIn that there's some interesting tactics that have occurred in the, in the past that you've had to uncover. So, I mean, who better to develop new products for patients other than physicians, right? Absolutely. Um, that's where a lot of them come from. However, we do have to be careful with the Sunshine Act and transparency laws and ensuring that A product isn't utilized for the financial benefit of a physician or physicians that have ownership in that company. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean we don't use them. We do have them legally vetted first before we approve them for use, and we do monitor the utilization. On the flip side, when we're talking about things such as osteobiologics, amniotic tissue, stem cells, products of that nature... Those are a little different. They are approved differently through the FDA. Many are unaware of that. So what we knew is that we had an increase in spend month over month, year over year across the nation in certain osteobiologics. And we didn't know why. And so I had decided I was going to take this under just for my facility alone and track it and try to understand what, why is the product being used? What's the benefit of it? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I found in my research is that the clinical evidence behind the use of the product was lacking. So that was number one, right? Then I started tracking, well, what kind of cases are these products being used in? If, for example, amniotic tissue is only approved for DFUs and ocular cases, primarily, you know, podiatry or eye cases, then why was it being used in healthy C-section cases? Why was it being used in prostatectomies? Why was it being used in appies? Didn't make any sense to me, right? So I started to look at it differently 
from a financial perspective and not a clinical perspective. And I started tracking my end users by month. I started tracking what was being put on our shelves by our reps, what was being ordered through the blood and tissue center. And from there, I started building out my data. And I could ask a vendor, let's say I had a vendor by the name of John who had one product and I would ask him, hey, will you go and speak with Dr. So-and-so and and see if he'll use your product because your product is a little less expensive and I could never get the surgeon to convert. But yet I knew in tracking my surgeon utilization and the, the product by vendor name, by size or CC and by price, I was really able to paint a financial picture over three years of what was occurring. And so I decided to sit down with some of my vendors and just understand what was going on and see how much information I could get out of them. And then I decided to start doing more research on my own on the weekends about these products that aren't approved through the normal FDA manner and all the legalities around some of these vendors that was public information. And so from there, I sat down with my vendors again to test my theory. And I said, hey, listen, we have an idea that there is some financial incentive here for physicians. And the moment that I sent that that message across the bow with my vendors, I was able to quickly track the utilization dropping off, which was astonishing when we were spending millions of dollars to see it drop down to less than $50,000 a month. And it spoke volumes about what was occurring. So once I started to sound the horn on what was going on, and I had to be very careful. It was a very political situation, right? We don't want to lose our surgeons. At the same time, you know, there was a question of, is this fraudulent or not, right? And so we had decided that we were going to put processes in place to stop the product from coming in without our knowledge. And that meant that if we found ambient temp tissue on our shelves that we did not order and we did not consign, we would have the rep come pick it up and we would decredential the rep. If it was used on a patient and we were unaware that it was on our shelves, we would tell the vendor, we are not paying you for it because this was not approved for use by us. We also put stop measures in place with local blood and tissue centers because they would automatically send product to the facilities without our knowledge, the morning that the product was to be used in a case. And so we, the process that we put in place with them was that they had to notify us at least 24 hours before the case that the product was being requested. And so all of those all of those measures that we put in place helped us significantly reduce the spend in this product category. And I can, I can guarantee you that probably many of these patients were unaware that this tissue was being implanted in them that had a completely different FDA approval process and no level one studies to support their use. Well, thank you for that wealth of information on that because we have seen it out here 
as well as other hospital systems, well, several hospital systems, a lot of these products are banned altogether now. We've been noticing it's, it's happening more and more and more. You'll, you'll see, and, and we won't go into the products, but just the, the versions of whether it's a stem cell product that no longer is available in the hospital. And, and it's just interesting how that took place in such a, now I, I wonder, and you, you could probably shed some more light on this, but I think this is going to dramatically change what the breadth of products is going to be available to the surgeon. Cause I think a lot of these are just not going to be, they're going to, they're going to be denied in hospitals across the country. They will not, you know, I'm not on the sales side anymore, so I don't have that visibility And it. Will it be immediately denied across the board? No, it takes eyes and a little intuition on the product categories to understand what's going on and be able to shut down that pipeline. Right now, there's not enough boots on the ground to financially manage this and keep an eye on it and understand what is going on with it. And that's the hardest part for healthcare systems. Sure. And and so to tie that back in with what we were talking about before, you know, with the, the value analysis committee. So say somebody now at this point in time brought a product like this to the value analysis committee and, and had a surgeon champion. What's the first thing the value analysis committee is going to do? They're going to obviously want clinical studies and research. And obviously that's not going to make it. So how does that look when something like that crosses, it comes into the committee? So with regards to some cells, amniotic tissue, things like that, the chances are they're probably going to say no because the indication isn't there unless it's in a podiatry case. I will say that, you know, there are small vendors out there that have excellent products and they just don't have the finances in their company to get level one studies to support their products. So it's not that all products that don't have level one studies are are bad and therefore we can't use. I think that in the what I would call the, the osteobiologic space, that's a little bit different in the sense that healthcare systems have been burned financially on it, that that one would be harder to get approval for. If there's something new that is, you know, like I said, a small vendor that that one might be approved differently. It really depends on the benefit to the patient and what kind of studies we can find to support it. Or it may be that maybe there aren't any studies and therefore maybe the healthcare system will start a study with that product to prove the efficacy and the outcomes of it. Gotcha. Well, it's going to be an interesting landscape moving forward because there's obviously, there seems to be some momentum to limit those type of products in the hospital. And I don't want to use the word limit, but I guess there's a definite focus on it. How about that? There absolutely is. I think there's more more eyes on it now, which I'm curious to see what does that total spend look like for healthcare systems and what are they doing about it? I don't have any intel into that now. So, But for me, it was an eye-opening discovery that really took me a solid three years of of seven days a week of understanding the financials and what was going on with ghost entities and things of that nature. So there are ethical vendors and there are unethical vendors. And this just isn't in healthcare. This is in all industries, right? Very true. Is this going to go away? No, it's not. But we just need to be ethical in our practice 
purposeful and keep our patients at the forefront of our minds when we're requesting new products and using new products. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and actually, so that brings me to another question. And this came up quite a bit. I got quite a few messages about it. In your eyes, you know, there are several, there's been this procedural type of thought process in hospitals where we're going to have a dual source vendor contract, or we're going to have a single source vendor contract. And actually, this is going to be the number one thing that those on the on the vendor side are, are curious about, because as a vendor, we see that and we say, wait a minute, you're severely limiting the amount of technology that can benefit your patients entering the hospital. This is on the vendor side of it. A. And then B, what really, I mean, this is my, I guess, a self-observation and, and others that have talked a bit to me about it is the legacy technology that some of these companies have that's 10 to 15 years old, they're essentially locking in their price at a very high premium in order to keep competitors out and their prices high for three years. And so it, it becomes really frustrating for a vendor so I just want to get your opinion on that. What's your thoughts, you know, why or and then this could be a hour long conversation. I don't know, but just see what you think about that. So sole source contracts are really beneficial to GPOs and you lock in your pricing, you get your rebates depending on spend. And so it was beneficial from that perspective. And I think what the pandemic proved for the GPOs is that, you know, a sole source contract no longer works. You need at least a dual because what happened during the pandemic is that if you reached out to a vendor that was not a contracted vendor with you, they said, thanks, no thanks, we're not selling you any product. We're keeping it for our existing customers. So I think what you'll see now is more dual source or multi-source contracts come out of GPOs because of 2020 and 2021. Now, having said that, GPOs can place products on contract at a national level. It does not mean that because it's on a contracted at a national level that every healthcare system associated with that GPO can use it. For example, healthcare system XYZ may have a certain price point with let's say Vizient or Health Trust, right? And then this other hospital over here may use the same GPO, but they have a different price point with the same GPO. Just it's a matter of how they negotiate. So because they're contracted at the national level and doesn't mean that they can all be used throughout the nation like that, it is truly up to the facility and the division the facility is in or the market the facility is in of whether or not they want to approve the use of that product whether it's on contract or not. They'll still do their due diligence of working through the financials, the reimbursement, and seeing if it benefits them. Gotcha. Well, that's good to know. And we have seen that in certain institutions. But it's as a vendor, it's frustrating when you're immediately, you walk into a, you know, a room and you have people and you, you're there to discuss your products. And the first thing they say is, well, we have a dual source contract and that will be up in 2024. So come back then. Right. Well, and what they also try to do, not try to do, they do, is that 
even though we have the national contracts, is that many healthcare systems will negotiate their own local contracts. It depends on what service line it is, how much revenue that service line is, and that's where the local contracts come into play with significant rebates. And so that locks vendors out as well, but it's to the benefit of the healthcare system and growing their service line. And that makes sense. And that makes it totally understandable why they do and they choose that. And I, I think you make a great point about the pandemic. I'm on a lot of the vendors talk about hopefully one thing that may come out of this is that they have the opportunity to see companies provide technology that not only helps their patients, but cost savings as well. And it's just that's what frustrates vendors is they know that the cost savings is there for the facility, but the facility adheres to a contract that that's not that's does it doesn't seem like the goal. How about that? But Yeah, I can tell you that, I mean, I've met through with many vendors throughout the years that have brought me off contract products that were actually less expensive than the contracted product, but I I literally could not move to the off contract product. And that goes both ways, right? We had surgeons that would use off contract products. And so depending on what that spend would look like across the division or across the nation, then at that point, it would behoove the GPO to say, okay, listen, we need to put this product on contract and try to work with a vendor to get a better pricing. Yes. And we've seen that. And I've talked to vendors, they've seen that. And that definitely does occur that they do get put on contract after a while. It's just, you know, obviously it's always the speed of when things can happen. That they all are are clamoring about at this point in time. Well, thank you so much for all this information. I know that it has answered a lot of questions for our audience, a lot of questions that came up through LinkedIn and in different avenues. And as we proceed and, and down this road with watching these different value analysis committees, we may ask you to come back on again. So to give your opinion, because I can tell you it was a very hot topic. And so <laughs> there were several people who wanted to get your feedback on it. I will tell you, there's also, you know, there's a selling and a relationship building piece to presenting your product as well. If vendors start by simply approaching the surgeons first, this is what I found is that many vendors don't know that their starting point is supply chain. And if you don't build those relationships and you work with your surgeons or your departments first, whether it's endo, OBGYN, what have you, and then you come back around to supply chain, then the relationship needs working, right? So I've even done in the past vendor training about how to sell the supply chain and how to understand your supply chain team to help reps out and knowing how to just manage the relationships and working the healthcare system. That is great feedback. Thank you for that because I totally agree with you. I think that when a relationship is there first, and it's built upon, you know, providing the information that your person, the, the individual you're, you're working with in value analysis, they have that kind of relationship. It's a back and forth that's, you know, the, the, the training is a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that more vendors need to focus on that when they're supporting their new hires. I can tell you that having, having worked for a small reprocessing company that was bought by a rather large med device company, that was never part of our sales training. No, you're exactly right, actually. You know, I, I now that I think about it, and obviously I come from the sales side of things, we never had that training. It was always, we had a contracts person, but never somebody, you know, never training locally. So that's very interesting. Well, 
maybe that's something to explore. How about that? Yeah, there you go. Gotcha. Well, hey, Laura, thank you so much for taking time today to come on the Ortho Idea podcast. I really, really appreciate it. If in the future, well, we'll do this in the future. I'd love to have you come back on again. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. This was fun. Great. Well, you have yourself a great day. You too. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for tuning in to the Ortho Idea podcast. If you would like to learn more about the technologies discussed, please visit www.orthoidea.com.